This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we take a slight detour from our typical Marxist political economic affair or enemy camp excursions, and we look into the thought of Jean Baudrillard. The pieces we examined in particular were In the Shadow of Silent Majorities, and for bonus points, we also looked at The Precession of Simulacra and On Nihilism from his seminal collection, Simulacra and Simulation. And what you're listening to now is By Mode 1 from the soundtrack to the PC game The Sims. All right, so talking about this was kind of my idea. Um, and just the, I've had a, you know, Jean Baudrillard was maybe like one of the first like uh, critical theorists I looked at. I kind of came to him by way of of uh, Guy Debord. Um, I always liked Guy Debord more, and I always kind of thought Baudrillard was trash. And as I became more and more of a Marxist, I thought of him more and more as trash. But I feel like events in the last few years and the general trajectory of things has has got me thinking. You know what? Maybe the son of a bitch has a point. So I thought it might be interesting to revisit Baudrillard and kind of assess his his thought in light of not only, you know, the post-Trump world, but, you know, the but with a, you know, the sort of materialist Marxist analysis that we've developed, you know, over our years as autodidact uh, radical nerds. So, uh, yeah, so Jean Baudrillard, the main piece we read was uh, in the Shadow of Silent Majorities. And for bonus points, people read uh, the procession of simulacra from uh, simulacra and simulation. And then the last piece, which is the first piece, and then the last piece on nihilism, where uh, Baudrillard kind of tips his hand. Um, so, I guess, uh, does anybody... Did any, did anybody has anybody like in read Baudrillard uh, before this? Did they have any kind of relation to his thought or thoughts on his thought? Or I, I had I had read a little bit of Baudrillard because in the Matrix, the book that the pills are cut out of is uh, Simulacra and Simulation. So I was like, oh shit, okay, I'm gonna go look at this, and I was like, all right, this is gibberish because I was pretty young and I hadn't done any of this philosophy shit. So and then. Like at some point I returned to it, but I had always seen him as a companion to Debord. I didn't really see him as that much of a challenge. Now that I'm reading him like a little more seriously, like I can see where he's making kind of a radically different point than Debord. We should we should definitely we should definitely explain that. I I, I would agree that he's he's counterposed with Debord, even though he's kind of post situationist in a certain way. Well, I think this might be kind of a, like a obtuse way of putting it, but he was kind of a part of. I feel like I feel like Elaine Badu would say that he was a part of. He would take that old Maoist opposition of the one into two and the two into one, and he would basically say that 
Baudrillard was part of that wave of philosophers where it was the two into one and that there was this kind they they posited this kind of the end of any kind of dialectic and this overall um, amorphous kind of like sameness like you can see it in this where Baudrillard basically claims kind of like every, all categories have sort of collapsed into each other right. into this general kind of like operating machine or you see it or you would see it you would see it in like the rhizomatic thought of like Deleuze, right? Where there there's just this this uh, yeah this sort of rhizomatic structure and not like a clear binary set of oppositions that constitutes you know the basis of the structures of our society and thought and so forth. Yeah, I was gonna say doesn't Badu like kind of critique it in that article, the fascism of the potato, and he says that like these people <laughs> like Deleuze and and Baudrillard they want to like basically like erode any kind of categories that we can use to identify you know contradictions and and he replaces it with like this multiplicity of you know relative like free flows of desire and so and it's and it's and that's kind of the sense i got from this is that it's very much this it reminded me of the lose basically and and to be honest like I understand. It reminds me. I of, understand why you'd say that, but in fact, Deleuze is a frequent target in here. But go on. But go on. Yeah, Deleuze is like in that sort of same category of post-structuralist, but at the same time, he's got like more of a positive energy going for it. I, I it's there's still like that sixty-eight yeah. vibe. It, well, I guess you could say big Deleuze, Deleuze energy and like like Deleuze would see in like the free flow of desire something positive. Or maybe Baudrillard just sees it as a way to rationalize our own, like, embeddedness in this all-encompassing power structure, basically. Well, I think one thing that, like, a recurrent thing when you look at Baudrillard is he his view is is one that is catastrophic. Like, he sees everything as basically in a state of implosion and entropy. And it's pretty much uncontrollable. Well, it's interesting because there's a lot of, there's a lot of bitterness in his writing. Uh, yeah. In 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 many ways, it's it's interesting because he is almost more embittered than say Debord, but Debord, you know, ended up killing himself, and Baudrillard didn't. Well, that like, makes Baudrillard sense. Something optimistic about Baudrillard compared to Debord, actually. I, I think. Well, I think. Well, hold on. before if you look that at hot the take. Theoretical. Well, before well, let me okay. finish my yeah, let me yeah. finish my point. I feel like Go I feel like Baudrillard is trying to find almost he's not comfortable with it, but he wants to adopt this kind of like smoke him if you got him, you know, let's crack open a beer and watch the train wreck kind of vibe. Mm. Um, but at the same time, he also he also makes he also wants to make this claim that you know the only thing left is is like basically terrorism and that he's practicing some kind of theoretical terrorism by refusing like the categories of. You know the deterrence within the you know giant order of simulation, right? So I guess my point is like you know that's because I think that Baudrillard I think as he claims in the last piece in Simulacron Simulation is he is a nihilist and like any nihilist he is always in a way kind of backwards looking you know. Well, it kind of reminded me of Nick Land in in a way to be honest. Like I just got this kind of sense of like you said, just smoke them if you got them, accelerate it, and like see where this whole chaos of fragmentation of multiplicities goes and let's just kind of just you know watch it all implode and you know maybe we'll 
see something new come out of it. I don't know. Well, let's talk about the sense of implosion because I think the main the main difference between the like a Nick Land is this uh, concept of implosion, and I thought that you mentioning that Debord killed himself and Baudrillard didn't is really fitting of his concept of implosion. It's not a bang, but a whimper. It's a, not a, a big orgasmic collapse, but it's a pathetic, you know, dwindling off into the night. Like it's well, it's, yeah, it's interesting because that's what that's one thing he talks. So in the piece, like in the shadow of silent majorities, he's sort of maybe examining maybe the sort of seeming growing indifference of. Well, first of all, he even he even like interrogates the category of the masses as a thing. Like for him, like the masses is the place where everything goes, every everything social goes to die, right? Like for him, the mass is like this this excremental remainder of what's left of late capitalist society or whatever. And he adopts a weird position because he kind of shirks away from it a little bit. But he almost wants to say like the 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 laziness and stupidity of the masses is, is almost a form of resistance and an even a better form of resistance to the totalizing structures of our you know uh, post reality society than an actual the actual like in the streets man the barricades resistance would be. Which, yeah, and if if that's really his case, I I just want to ask like who's paying him to say that shit? <laughs> his his own conscience upon watching the 20th century's hopes completely collapse in a way that wouldn't hasn't recovered yet. That's what he's no, doing. I think this is bullshit. Yeah, like he's 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 taking that's like, part of his catastrophism though. He sees everything as just this big catastrophe, and it's all going downhill and regressing. And, and he's obsessed and it's all just with doom, that. Doom, doom, doom. He's obsessed with the undoing, and in a historical way, that's justified. Um, in a way that I don't think it's maybe as justified for us because actually we might get a pathetic dwindling. You know, but we might actually get a big orgasmic collapse in the in the worst way. He points out how sort of at the horizon, at the horizon line of any kind of global civilization wide conflict is the atom bomb. And for him, and remember writing in the late twentieth century, for him, it's it's clear that the atom bomb is something that he believes will basically never be deployed. Because it will never be deployed, it sets sort of a limit to human conflict and sort of creates this kind of containment within which um, you know, we really can't upend the system in any direct fundamental way. And so what you just have is this kind of an aim like systems basically aiming at total control, but because of this um, weird um, epistemological problem, they'll never the the control will always be weirdly illusory because of I don't know. I'm not sure what he attributes this to. Maybe it's increased complexity. Maybe it's some like obscure, like semiotic theory. I'm not too familiar with his earlier work where he goes more into that stuff. But for him, you know, basically, it's it's really impossible for human beings to really fully comprehend reality, and so they'll develop these models that are independent of reality, and then they'll just sort of live in those models. And, and okay, so that may actually that helps me understand what he's basically saying right now. But I think it's overplayed to the extent to which that rules over everything. And it can kind of lead to an almost anti-materialist way of looking at things. Oh, he is definitely anti-materialist. Yeah, he's way beyond that. Yeah, that's a, that's a bit, and that's a big part, of course, of the problem of this. Because there is still, like, I'm sorry, there is reality. Like, there are, <gasps> there are things that happen independent of human consciousness. And they do have effects that shape things. And we can 
do, yes, create models to help understand these structures and, you know, uh, make the, you know, do stuff based on that shit. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, right. The denial of mediation and, and meaning stuff is, is off. Well, well sure, but, but the point of that language is, is that the social import of that reality has been obliterated by, you know, he, I want to say, you know, false falsehoods. I want to say lies. I want to say, you know, ideology. I want to say all these things. But for him, it's so important that we take that world as the as the main reference. And you know what? It is. It is more important than everything else in the consciousness of most of the people I know. Like that is reality. Like that's more that like that social reality ends up being more important than the physical reality that we think you know is pri- is primary. And so that's why he's an idealist. Know. That's that's why he I takes I, a nihilistic idealism. I think this idealism. idea that the masses are stupid is just pretentious bullshit. Yeah, I think it's bullshit. Like I think the masses are. We're all just, we're we're not it's, we we all have to eat every day. Like that grounds us in material conditions. Like maybe we don't think yeah, about that, it. Yeah, it's that a misreading way, like, to say that he's he's just he's actually he actually like wants so badly to not be contemptuous of the masses that he dismantles every form of social and political like normativity in order to make like what all critical theorists universally see as you know flaws in humanity like into a kind of like you know resistance but well, he, yeah and then he makes fun of himself for trying to do it compared to debord yeah and, and he, that, he, that's yeah. where i think he's wrong though is that he accepts the current state of humanity as like given that's also another huge flaw. Then, like he can't escape this like one-dimensional man NPC sheeple stuff. No matter how much he wants to, though, he still thinks everybody's a moron. I feel like, and and I think that he's where he's optimistic compared to Debord is that he he looks at the the kind of relative political inertia of the masses and this kind of refusal and that spirit of negation haunting civil society. And he says, you know, may, maybe there's more to that than total passivity on people's parts. Maybe there's there's, there's some kind of active refusal of, of their supposed representation, but he's he's just can't get over the I, he doesn't really get all the way there because he just thinks people are so dumb, and he, well, and he seems to think better. that the social has just dissolved completely in this way that he never really defines. Yeah, I, I knew that would really annoy you, but like well, um, <laughs> it was both the social and the political that are destroyed, though. So it it annoys yeah, everyone yeah. except well, for well, me. Social there can be no political, so yeah. Like, but the point is, is that the boar like offers a way out. He sees like like as all encompassing as a spectacle becomes, like the boar still sees a contradiction in society that ultimately is a way out. Whereas in Baudrillard, right, he seems to be like, weirdly dismissive of the proletariat. It's 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 odd. I don't know why you would dismiss the proletariat with Baudrillard's c- worldview. Because it doesn't exist. It's it's a because it's it's a post-Soviet world, and it seems like the proletariat has been completely like atomized and won over to neoliberalism, and everyone's just a consumer in this free market world. And that's just it was the ideology of the time, like. It's just, you know, even though, like, you had the proletariat still existed. Well, no, but that's the problem of adopting this nominal, like, look at the proletariat as, like, a fighting class instead of the sociological category. Because if you take the first definition, Baudrillard is correct. And the reason that Baudrillard ends no, up at these conclusions no, is because he uses this bullshit nominalism that where he takes a social phenomenon 
uh, gives it a, a common sense everyday language name and then can make bold claims about common sense everyday language things because of these historical phenomena. This is what is known as the Marxist method. It's garbage. The proletariat was fighting in the Middle East during the 1990s. Like they act like all class struggle like stopped ex- happening in the sense of actual struggle. It's just this was the eighties. It's, it's it's all over. We have the struggle. Class struggle never ends. It just moves throughout the world. That's one thing that I think is important about Beverly Silver's book. I think I think I think what Baudrillard would claim here, and I, I mean obviously I don't agree with this, but to play devil's advocate, I would say that he would basically he basically he sees. The nuclear, the atomic bomb is having massive implications. So for him, these structures will only, these struggles will only ever be localized and can't be generalized to a global conflict because you know it would basically result in nuclear war and everyone knows it. Yeah, and this is this is yeah, 1978 actually that he's writing uh, the Shadow Asylum Majorities or uh, when it comes out. So that's that's probably right on. I feel like the collapse of the Soviet Union kind of proves like the point to be utterly mute as like. Nuclear weapons did not prevent the Soviet Union from collapsing. It does not prevent regime change from happening. It doesn't prevent major global dislocations. Like, look what's happened. I think 2018, this year, has been a year of... We are seeing all kinds of global revolts throughout the world. Like, we're seeing a rise of right-wing, like, you know, populism and authoritarianism. But we're also seeing class struggle in a way that it wasn't there in 2017. Like, this year has been a... To, well, to counter the USSR example, the USSR was basically integrated into the global capitalist economy. And the the example that he uses uh, vis-a-vis that would be the Vietnam War. Like, he basically talked about how, like, what, what preceded the end of the Vietnam War was the beginning of China's integration into global capitalism with the, you know, the talks between Nixon and Mao. And... That basically that was the actual necessary. So basically, by that the United States won the Vietnam War by basically neutralizing China, and then the rest of it, the bombings and so forth, were all basically a simulation um, designed to. That's just nonsense. No, but there, in my no, opinion. there's some disgusting truth to the idea that there was a like a, a simulated extent to the conflict because um, about halfway through the war. Uh, Kissinger like advised Nixon about the war based on out- election outcomes and so about half of the casualties could have like been cut off there that's when the military generals knew that the war was not Therefore, like f- was not winnable we're getting into no, but, the debate but, 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 but like, do you understand really complex. but do you understand so why like he would call it debate you understand why you, he about, would call like, it a simulation moment. is that it was no longer actually about like winning a war there because the military knew that they couldn't win it was at that point a slaughter for an election like that is really the right, which deep is point. which is similar to his point about the Gulf War, where he basically talked about how the Gulf War essentially existed to, you know, annihilate the concept of warfare and to turn it into this sort of thing that you could sell to the American public as this clean thing that would exist on television and would exist well, without I consequence. Think yeah, the point that's the rational kernel. I hate that phrase, but like look the for point it. being made here or whatever is that yeah, a lot of of military and operations and imperialism does take place on an ideological level 
and this kind of ideological level can almost take a life of its own and bring military conflicts into directions that aren't purely explainable through just raw economic yeah. determinism. Right. That's where I right. think it's that he's correct. It's no, the it's no longer functional, of, and there's like a free play of these quote signs. You can't think, like, like basically, like in wartime, you can't explain everything according to the logic of capitalism. There's wars have political functions for like statecraft and political like state functionaries. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, in wartime, the state becomes so much more important in mobilizing the population and resources. And so it just, you know, things take on a more political and even ideological level of determination in wartime. But I don't just say that like it's all just like a simulate. I don't know. I, mean, I guess it's a metaphor of like, use the word simulation. Mm, I don't think like, it is a metaphor. I think what he's trying to get at is that we all do this kind of reenactment or, or a kind of symbolic kind of dance. There, so well, this, know, this guy's coming out of, of uh, nihilism, right? Well, no, but some. So he's coming out of nihilism and like, but and specifically the nihilism and like the tradition of uh, George Bataille and the whole concept there was like that life is imitative and there's a sign kind of like perverse like morbid glee and imitation and so like that's where he's coming from with simulation and when i look at politics today and i think of the problem of political subculture and how as you know as political actors none of us ever actually get to wrestle with serious questions of representation in regards to the democratic institutions of the state and so we have this simulation of politics that takes place of the actual participation in the representative institutions of the state. Like there is a simulatory like quality to right. that. But there is there is a social or maybe like an antisocial basis to that. Like, you know, look at like Napoleon the third, right? Like he had the lump, he had the sort of the, the sack of potatoes, like peasant masses who he was able to basically counterfeit himself as like Napoleon, right? Like, similarly in the United States, you have this kind of, like, atomized, you know, American heterogeneous, like, American proletariat doesn't have, like, strong social institutions that can exist outside of the state or outside of the market and can t challenge those things in any meaningful sense. So what you get – so what you get are, like, these – are you know, are figure – you get these, are these strange figures like, like Reagan or Trump – who harken back to like this kind of mythical time when there was like some well, kind I was of like, gonna social say, foundation? Like Andrew Jackson is kind of the perfect example of that because he was kind mm -hmm. of like this. Um, he just like he was this uh, authoritarian, you know, racist and genocidal, you know, asshole. But he was able to portray himself as like the everyman of like the white man. So he created right. This whole, he expanded like, um, masculine know, suffrage to be universal. Yeah, exactly. He had we had full male suffrage, but it was like based on the solidarity of white men, especially against blacks, and it right. was it was really fucked up. But it's it shows that like you know there is a, this kind of element has existed as mass politics has always existed. Right. Well, he 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 talks about kind of like I think many of the more famous things he talks about are like these different like orders of simulation, um, and maybe I could just like read like the the brief kind of summary. Um, that he basically for him traces like from like sort of early mo like you know the the enlightenment era to you know 
present day, you know, post-modernity. So it goes, the successive phases of the image. It is the reflection of a profound reality. It masks and denatures a profound reality. It masks the absence of a profound reality. It has no relation to any reality whatsoever. It is its own pure simulacrum. And so, you know, you could sort of trace, like, like the earlier sections to kind of like he's always talking about when in art how they sort of first developed um like perspective in order to create image and you know use using of like optics in order to create images that simulated you know um visual perception and then how over time sort of art shifted and became you know more concerned with like its own um, categories of representation and then eventually of its own like existence as like an object or whatever and he kind of sees like a similar, like um, epistemological drift happening in society as like capitalism sort of like develops and um, you know all the all the solid sort of melts into air, right? Until you end up with this point where there is so he seems to think that there's so much information and there's so much there's just this glut of it to the point where you know signs and things have no referent except to other signs and it's it's just its own. It's like this sort of pure machine, like completely abstracted from any common shared sense of the real, if that makes sense. Any thoughts on that? Did I did I, did I summarize that okay? I like I don't make any claim to really understand this stuff um, fully. No, but, but you at least like make something tangible that I can understand out of it. Like I will say that like I really had trouble getting something out of this. Well, he doesn't make it easy. Yeah, he makes it really hard, and I honestly find Foucault more easy to read and get something concrete out of oh yeah this uh, stuff. Foucault, like, Foucault the, like Bourdieu was, any of those guys well, he's are, also yeah, more realistic even. I think I think Foucault is like much more onto something by accepting how powerful management can be and Baudrillard is right that people have there's you know a sort of weapon of the weak like where you can you know kind of just tune out and try to disassociate from like a symbolic order or something but um but, but like, management totally still plays. reigns, you know, like there's still like power and there's autonomous forms of power too, like Foucault recognizes. So it kind of gives you a sense of like the politics of post-structuralism. But it's this kind of hope that like you just decentralize all power down to the individual basically. And so it fits perfectly in with market ideology. Well, that's what's interesting too is because he also seems to buy into the idea that the realm of like circulation has become completely detached from production. Like, he basically claims that consumption and, like, finance capital are just, like, their own, like, these basically self-contained systems that have nothing to do with real production anymore, which is just completely absurd. But also kind of fitting with the ideology of the time. Yeah, and not, not like, totally ridiculous because uh, the way that rents work in, like, super developed commodity markets are really weird. Like, it's, it is, like, a kind of crazy, I don't know. I was just thinking, and we were talking about earlier, like all the companies that are failing, if you measure it by profitability, but are like extremely important and super heavily invested in, like right. Yeah, that's the portion of truth to it. But there wouldn't well, be financial crisis if 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 it was as of course as insane as he was saying. No, Baudrillard, Baudrillard is is not literally true. You have to read everything he's he's doing as like basically metaphorical and sometimes it comes too creepily close to being dead on right it's, it's very it's very hyperbolic and he, it is he he catastrophizes you know he 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 blows things out of proportion to be sure but 
um, you know, I think it's it's interesting because he presents basically an insane vision, but in a way he kind of reflects an increasingly insane society. Well, that's yeah, that's what they say about postmodernity is that it's like a it's it's a it's a uh, diagnosis basically. It's not a you know, it's not a theory. There's no such thing as postmodern theory so much as postmodernism is a condition of society that's diagnosed by theorists that discuss postmodernity. Well, and this is the other kind of I think this is like the big the big problem in his whole edifice is that so Debord doesn't do this as badly, but he basically builds off Lukacs and talks about like the epistemological element of capitalism. And because Debord is an artist and that's kind of the realm that he inhabits, he he focuses in his analysis ex- exclusively on culture. And so he basically comes up with this idea that he basically writes a society the spectacle and takes phrases from Marx and basically substitutes commodities for images, right? And so, like, Baudrillard basically takes this um, this epistemological break and then runs it into, like, this reducto ad absurdum place where there no longer is any, like, relationship between material society and the sort of, this, you could call the superstructure or the same of the crime or whatever. There's no longer any dialectic. It's all just sort of collapsed in this kind of, you know, decadent, uh, imploding, diluted edifice, you know. So, but the problem is, yeah, it's like this, I think that this sort of epistemological claim is... It it is ba- like he seems to think that if you can if you were to attack if you were to like expose the level like for instance at one point he goes like uh if you simulated like robbing a bank you would you'd probably get punished even worse than actually robbing a bank and he seems to he seems to overestimate the degree to which like fakery underpins you know uh the 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 fabric of society yeah does that make sense oh absolutely and this is especially. Uh, heightened when you look at his critique of science, which is the standard like nihilist view of well, I'm gonna just deflate all knowledge claims. Oh like, God! So wait, does he does he think science is just like a relative like language game, basically? More or less, yeah. And so oh, that's th- that's oh, really God. the way out. No, no, it's a catastrophism that's beyond something that he can even imagine because he's so symbolically oriented. Is what is happening to the Earth. You know, like this is happening now and it's something we can track like with our with all of our this is all we can track it with all of our like uh, equipment and, you know, studies and tests that he has so much disdain for as just being these prodding instruments. But you know what? It's real. It's happening. This line of thinking is so destructive on the social sciences. And it is basically like I, I it's it's freaking me out to think about how. This stuff, you know, this idea that we can't understand anything and everything is just this constant differentiation and I don't know. It's just, it's kind of a, it's it's very dark. It's the full frog bong uh, yes. rip meme, you know, like, that's what it is. But I think it's just like surrendering human agency from our understanding of the social sciences. Like, it's it's basically like... Althusser, but on crack. Yeah, no, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. But, yeah. but that's where all of these structuralists, more or less, end up. They end up adopting this kind of like sign system and trying to develop out a scientific enterprise, and then it collapses and falls to shit because it's you know 
flawed from the beginning and they realize that and they have this extreme overreaction and they're like, well, if I couldn't do it, nobody can. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. And it's like, it's almost like the, the, their theory though is dedicated to like eliminating any agency whatsoever in history. Well, he claims he, well, he, he yeah, I mean, he basically, yeah, he is very much like he is, he is the, if Fukuyama is the end of history, Batman, he's the Joker, you know? Like he is, he is the he is the Black Mirror end of history figure, um, where it's not it. This isn't like the peace. Like this is the this is the collapse essentially. That's why it reminds me of like the accelerationist shit. I think maybe all this also sort of connects to his affinity for terrorism, right? Where he talks about like basically terrorism is kind of like the last the last form of like you know sort of resistance, and that like terrorism like. It's situated within the simulation, but it disrupts it in a way. I, I, I'm not sure if I totally understand his thoughts there, but I think I, think I get it. Like for instance, like it's it's well, like, it's because be there's an there's, like a form there's an undifferentiated mass. There's an undifferentiated mass, right? And that's the main term of you know what used to be society. And so the only way to really do anything that signifies something on that level is to try to it, it, like attack precisely that undifferentiated mass to not discriminate in your who you choose as victims it's quite a disturbing theory actually but i think it does sum up the logic of terrorism in an age like ours well honestly this whole undifferentiated mass idea was really bothering me because it reminded me of like fascist theory to be yes yes it is it is very fascist and i think it's misleading for some of the examples that he brings out like when when a Palestinian, you know, like shoots into Israel, like with a rocket, I, he, he, you know, brings something like this up. I actually don't think he's the, the, the Palestinian, you know, fighter is trying to hit an undifferentiated mass. I think he's trying to hit Israel. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> no, he's trying to hit a settler. Like he's trying to fucking like, you know, I feel like this, uh, this would be more appropriate for describing the mindset of like a, like Elliot Rogers or some kind of school shooter. Precisely. Yes. Yeah. That's where it would be more accurate. Also, overall, I get like basically like um, B- Baudrillard is essentially like a a Adorno two I guess. Like you, you get that feeling, the same sort of gloomy nihilism that comes from like being disappointed by the laugh continually. The melancholy. And- yeah, the, uh, yeah, dialectic of regression, basically. Yeah, you get that. You know, it's sort of weird that like you can just draw it back to Lukács and like Luke. If Lukács were alive, he, you know, he would like classify, um, uh, classify him in the sort of like hotel misery. I I forget the name. Hotel Grand. Grand Hotel. Hotel Grand Abyss. I'm so bad. Yeah. I'm sorry. Man. Yeah. But like, uh, it's it's just the reason it's so sick and twisted to me. Like, is just how inhuman and it's like, uh, and it's the same thing that like, annoys me with Althusser. Is like it really is this attempt to just like reduce everything to just language and take all actual human sensuous activity out of the equation. And it's 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 just. I don't know. I prefer, like, 
just vulgar Marxism even to this kind of stuff because it's oh yeah me, me too well, not me too. only do I prefer vulgar Marxism but it, it the goofiest thing is that this has like some kind of purported Frankfurt school heritage and the same for Althusser purportedly you know he's working in a critical theory tradition but the obvious joke is that you know structuralism and post-structuralism represent the most thorough dialectic of enlightenment possible where like their little you know instrumental like class interest academic project doesn't work out so they can't become you know petty managerial types in a <clears throat> in like a, a golden age economy or in a soviet state and that whole world withers away and, and their horizons go um and they they get bitter and jaded so you would say that this kind of ideology is a result of like a certain technocratic like elite basically like having their hopes dashed well yeah like the, the dialectic of enlightenment is the the um the link between total knowledge and like you know absolute terror right like and so their their like knowledge basically collapses and they get revenge <laughs> like they 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 had so such like proprietarian investments in in being critical theorists in a certain way and they couldn't do it and i think the the ultimate dialectic of enlightenment the most like stupid like tragic like farcical se second order third order simulacrum whatever way actually occurs in the anti-humanist critical theorists the dominant traditions after uh the frankfurt school so i i still maintain re respect for the frankfurt school while just gazing in awe at the clowns that come after them yeah you, you, you know first as tragedy then as farce yeah i know that's cliche to bring up at every yeah that's what moment. i mean well i mean i will even defend althusser and the althusserian marxist to a certain degree because i think that they did actually do some good work I mean, just read the analytical Marxists instead. You were reading G. A. Cohen I mean, yeah, earlier, right? Just read. You should. You should read both. I mean, like they. I mean, like I just think you should read everything. Right, but for the but for the 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 sickness that I'm diagnosing, I think you know the one is is less um, the one is is less like admissible to that than the other because the very language of Althusserian science collapses, where like you know social science as a whole. Okay, yeah, it's. There are some reproducibility crises. There are problems with prioritizing models over reality. Um, like when we were doing the the debates over the TSSI and Marx's Capital, like you know, when you re you really get the sense that these these scientific debates are are a super clown show. Like, and it's 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 very embarrassing for the state of like research in mainstream economics and in Marxist economics. Well, anyway, I was going to bring up, like, I was thinking about why this, you know, the whole idea of the silent majority, like, what is exactly is Baudrillard getting at here? Because my understanding was, like, you know, because you had this whole idea that, like, Nixon and the right wing in America appealed to, that there was a silent majority who opposed all of the madness of, like, you know, protesting the war and the counterculture and, you know... Yeah, I mean, Baudrillard's conception of it is a little more metaphysical. I actually have a passage here pulled up where it kind of distills what he's saying, I think. The only referent which still functions is that of the silent majority. All contemporary systems function on this nebulous entity, on this floating substance whose existence is no longer social but statistical, and whose only mode of appearance is that of the survey. 
a simulation on the horizon of the social, or rather, on whose horizon the social has already disappeared. That the silent majority, or the masses, is an imaginary referent does not mean that they don't exist. It means that their representation is no longer possible. The masses are no longer a referent because they no longer belong to the order of representation. They don't express themselves, they are surveyed. They don't reflect upon themselves, they are tested. The referendum, and the media are a constant referendum directed of directed questions and answers, has been substituted for the political referent. Now, polls, tests, the referendum, media are devices which no longer belong to a dimension of representations, but to one of simulation. They no longer have a referent in view, but a model. Yeah, that was the passage that really, I think, made the most sense to me. And so he's basically, what he's basically saying is that there's this ideal silent majority that's projected onto society by, you know, by ideology, basically, or, you know, the media, or through language, or just basically saying is that basically we construct this ideal silent majority to stand in for the actual majority and what their interests are, because those interests can't possibly be expressed because everything is too atomized and complex. And so this idea of the silent majority stands in as a way for people to kind of, you know, falsely represent the actual majority, if that makes sense. Yeah, and for him, yeah, like society has become so detached from any kind of like organic, like social entity or whatever that it's just, yeah, it's just like this, this atomized, like, narcotized fucking you know addicted to spectacles you know sort of lumpen reactionary mass that isn't really anything you know or if it what it is is beyond like is beyond is incapable of being represented well even lumpen doesn't quite cover it be how could that not be elitist in my opinion though like how can you say that people are no longer capable of representing themselves and like it's not being elitist like that's the whole idea of elitism is that people aren't capable of representing themselves and so therefore they need some kind of expert or myth or whatever well like, that that's the second step that he doesn't take he doesn't need the expert in the myth that that people are tr- actively trying to re- resist that for good reason yeah his idea is like basically like yeah, the the masses are the masses are resisting that kind of representation, and because I'm pouring scorn upon the elites who are trying to like put them into this box, um, have I have this weird kind of solidarity with them or whatever, you know? Well, it's just like I just don't understand why people think that it's no longer possible for the masses to represent themselves. Because look at what's happening right now with the yellow vest. Like, it's it's you know. Despite the mixed politics of that movement, it is the people representing themselves and organizing to do that. And you saw that, you see this all throughout the world with, you know, various revolts that happen. And it's just... Do we think he's maybe saying that kind of traditional past means of representation are outmoded or something? Yes. Do we want to go for a sympathetic reading here? Yeah, 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 definitely, because um, this is what EndNotes is getting at when they talk about— He might might be sympathetic to what you're saying right there, Donald. Well, that's—when when when he's saying that, he's uh, talking about what EndNotes means by a fictive unity that is kind of ad hoc created in these autonomous movements that doesn't— actually means something beyond the what it's used for like uh, an occupy like uh, a well, yellow I think vest there is, hold on i think there is something to silent majorities I, I think there is something a little bit to to silent majorities as a i mean i think he's he's putting it forward as a concept of that is like projected onto onto society um 
and I, I think that it it's not helpful in, in that sense. But he, he's also agree he seems to at the same time agree with the concept of a silent majority in the sense that he sees refusal to engage as as not just reactionary. Right. Well, we were actually kind of talking about this earlier where there's people who are like, we need like normie socialism or whatever, and how the concept of the normie kind of like masks like the non-existence of like such an entity because especially in the United States, like people's opinion, there's people's opinions are so eccentric and so difficult to sort of pin down into any like, you know, sort of clear alignment a lot, a lot of the time, unless... A third of social conservatives support abortion. I mean, it's it ideologically Americans are are not easy to put yeah, in a there's box. Just, there's no such thing as the normie. You can't make this ideal, a, a type of the American, and then like create a populism around attracting that ideal type. It just doesn't exist. And I think that's just like a factor of culture and how it develops under capitalism. How there's a kind of acceleration in culture and it, it basically means that like subcultures and cultural affinities are something that can just be purchased as easily as anything else and so it really actually makes these cultural affinities less important in a way i mean and i think the practical implications for us is our job is to basically advocate for you know solutions to this problem irrespective of like what the people's you know general opinions are right they like the job of like a political party or the job of communists is to advocate for communism not to just kind of like appeal to the perceived prejudices of the masses right and but while doing that you know we have to acknowledge the drastically different terrain we're on and and the weirdly like it's 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 hard to say like post material or something stupid like that it's just that people are extremely fixated on ideology to the point where like the functionality of it is is clearly like not the main operative variable there's a, there's a there's a flight from nihilism <clears throat> there is a lot of people offering meaning and a way out of nihilism that is you know superficial yeah, but look at like how ideologies function in the past like they got northern and south southern italians to kill each other just because of like geographic differences, it, like it's there are exceptions to the rule, but you know, in the kind of societies that we though, see, like in like, like we don't see as much of that like hyper like militant like mobilization against each other. We see this weird kind of drift that even even like the right can't get people to hold their tiki torches anymore. I mean, I don't know, not necessarily. Like in Poland, there was a pretty large Nazi rally. Like it's. Like it's, yeah, it's thousands of people. I think it's a specifically more or less American phenomenon that comes yeah. from like basically a declassing of like the settle declassing of the settlers that just kind of leaves them in a situation where they're not really like fully engaged with the empire at this point, but at the same that's time, that completely have... doesn't line up with the statistics about Europe. I mean the. If you've ever read um, "Hollowing the Vo uh, Ruling the Void: The Hollowing of Western Democracy" by Peter Mayer, uh, he makes a great case for uh, the decline of political legitimacy across Europe and and the election participation rates. It's all there. Um, it's not a specifically American phenomenon. This disengagement. 
Well, we were talking about just the nature of the right wing in Europe compared to America, I thought. But I, I think that it, it connects in a certain sense that the right wing is still not able to achieve that that real grounding underneath itself there. I don't know. Having large amounts of people in Poland marching. Poland has like a has a to... has a history there, but the, the, you aren't seeing a radical right social shift in Europe. I think well, you are I seeing mean, social it's... polarization in Europe. Like I I think you're seeing the battle lines between the left and right being drawn and immigration is one of those issues that really makes you know, this battle line have material effects. And so people, you know, I think you are seeing a polarization and not just like a general, you know, increase in social progressiveness. Okay, before we get too far in the weeds here, let's try and wrap up this conversation on the main topic at hand. I have a couple more points to hit. Um, I know earlier, Donald, you said that you know, you see how it's kind of reactionary or whatever. And I think it's like the reactionary component of this like stems from his his almost like Heideggerian fixation on authenticity. Yes, everything that's Heideggerian is just plagued by reactionariness. But the difference, I guess, maybe is that he, like Baudrillard, like is full on nihilist. And so he does not like he still he is in a sort of backwards looking way fixated on the loss of authenticity. But he also doesn't like believe in it at all. In, in, like anyway you know he sees like it's sort of in the same way maybe he seems to see like the like the way same way that Debord talks about how the spectacle is like an ideology like a worldview made like material or whatever like the like the like the simulation is like the the like the absence of meaning made material or whatever if that makes sense um but i was gonna say but the last thing i would say on this is that I think that, like I said, like he he catastrophizes, but we could well be existing in the midst of a catastrophe, and you know the general sort of weirdness, especially the kind of stuff like Adam Curtis talked about, like in hypernormalization, and the weird kind of cultural circularity that we exist within, and all of that, you know, to me, like I see some of his points, and I see some of like the rational kernel of it, and. I'm maybe more sympathetic than I was, say, three or four years ago to it. But obviously, for me, like, there's huge, huge, like, holes in this. Well, I was going to say, would you say that it's really kind of a product of, like, the growth of the mass media industry and the extent to which this mass media industry creates, like, a whole entire market of, like, consumption around identity, almost, that's kind of unique to you know modern capitalism because of consumer culture maybe that's kind of what baudrillard is getting at that this creates this whole new world this whole world of consumption and symbolic like you know it's like yeah it's 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 a it's a byproduct of it's a byproduct of like late capitalism you sort of have like eradication of like organic communities plus like this glut of information creates like you know you see what i'm saying creates a situation where everybody has their own kind of like weird worldview me included who's talking on a communist podcast you know what i mean support us on patreon like and subscribe but you know like we we are we are part of this as well and yeah it is it is kind of like 
there are potentially liberatory aspects to it, but there is also this thing where there's so much stuff that it all does take on a kind of sameness and a kind of meaninglessness. And so the idea is to get to a place again where there's real antagonism through which, you know, these ideas and these social forces can come and, you know, can conflict in a way that maybe challenges and upends the order that we exist within. Does that make sense? Is that high thoughts? No, no, I think it makes sense. And one of the ways that I think it would be familiar to like readers of Zizek or whatever is that Baudrillard finds a special consolation in what he calls like aggressive hyperconformity of when people like neurotically pile on like the thing that they're supposed to do into a feedback loop that kind of like breaks it. Like um, there's a, I don't know when people feel like that there's some sort of like transgressive way of dealing with pop music that isn't just the, well, I I choose to interpret this in an empowering way. It's more along the line of like, you know, this is what you want from me. Fine. I'm going to give you exactly what you want. I'm going to give you too much of what you want in a way that you don't want. Like, like that's a, this like overgrowth of it's overgrowth of like false desire. It's not, it's not authentic desire, but it's part of this seduction that he seems to find a bit of hope in, even though he thinks it's like part of like a nihilist spiral. He thinks that's where some kind of flicker is, obviously. All of these people have submerged hopes. It's just like, when you make a judgment, though, about authentic versus false desire, like, it's just so, like, it's just... But, but, it's, but, it's but, but, you, but like, you have to, like, understand is that he sees the concept of authentic as gone, that's that doesn't matter anymore like what matters is how many orders down of simulacra is it because the second order simulacra is like the baseline so basically we have just our desires and all our desires are authentic and everything should just basically be like this free flow of desires no no he 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 puts in so many shots towards the lose you have to look for him but no he doesn't think that desire is liberating in this way in fact one of the reasons that people withdraw it's liberating no, but it thinks it's no, the only things that one of the, it, one of the reasons people the withdraw is, is to exactly prevent desire from drawing them out in the Foucauldian way right like th- this this aggressive hyperconformity is sort of like the opposite pole of the silent majority thing but it it's a, it's neurotic it's a simulation in the sense that it it brings all the symptoms and the patient does believe that they're sick the the hyperconformist that is doing it too much that is um that's trying too hard like in in a bizarre way uh represents something not normal so this is the theory of the try hard <laughs> it is but we didn't talk about disneyland though got to talk disneyland happiest place on earth like honestly, like like there, when you read Baudrillard, there's like a lot of cringy shit in there, especially like his thing about Disneyland, where he's like, you know, like he compares like the parking lots at Disneyland to like the Holocaust at one point. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it makes you think, man. I, I like I like his claim that the food is better and the people are nicer in uh in Epcot Center than in Europe. Yeah, yeah. Well, we all know that like the the. Order of Simulation of Disneyland was destroyed when when Banksy went in and put a put a Gitmo doll in one, near one That's of the rides. That's true. It was very that, subversive. I think that woke a lot of people up. Yeah, I was shook. 
I think it, it woke a lot of people up. I think that's what Baudrillard's like really trying to do. He's trying to get people to take like the red pill <laughs> yeah. and like unplug from the yeah, matrix. Yeah, so they can see the truth, man. Yeah, yeah, that was his favorite movie. Yeah, too. yeah, he really loved how he was depicted in the Matrix as basically played out. Yeah, he he tried to get in the second one, but like Cornell West like lobbied hard to do it instead, and they said, "Sorry, Sean, like we can't." Yeah, it was just too woke for it, actually. Yeah, um, like the lizard men knew that like he was he was gonna spread the truth, he was gonna break through the sim simulation, but it was just like. Nah, nah, we gotta stop them. We gotta keep the EU going and the the pedophile rings and everything. <laughs> can't let them can't let them reveal those things. He was actually gonna like turn. Yeah, the, the problem is they they actually had him on set, but he just kept turning to the camera and going like, "Hey, you're just sitting there entranced by the screen right now, but this is ideology going into you, and you need to wake up and rise." Okay, put the, um, put the glasses on. <laughs> Yeah. Put the glasses uh, on. Um, so yeah, I think uh, there yeah, are so no I think, glasses. You know, the glasses are real. I think I think the uh, the teenage Maoists in, in the Cultural Revolution was right. We're 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 like the the two does not go into one. The one goes into two. I think that's where we need to go. Yeah, that's the trajectory we need to, to be to on. To the two. I mean, uh, I sympathize more with the teenage Maoists and the Cultural Revolution than with Baudrillard. Like <laughs> yeah. Although honestly, though, as somebody who lives in the in in the first world and you know we experience all this shit like again like when he he was like a newspaper basically paid him to cover the gulf war they're like okay when are you when are you gonna fly to iraq he's like i'm not going to fucking iraq i want to watch this shit on tv like everyone else because that's where <laughs> that's where that's where this is really going to happen you know and that's kind of how you know we are in a like weirdly ignoble position where we we exist in the midst of all this shit you know what i mean and we kind of yeah. maybe yeah we, we just I mean. can't dismiss the the resonance here. Like we live in the nightmare future that he describes. But the Gulf War still literally happened. There was it's it's, it's just the problem is that like if you get too fixated on this like symbolic world we live in, like, the real world just kind of becomes this fantasy Abstract. abstraction. Well, yeah, tell yeah. that tell, yeah, just this tell that to like the left. Tell that to political actors. Tell that to people that are hyper fixated on symbols and symbols only. Like it's very difficult to get out. And honestly, you know, I want them to, you know, stop being obsessed with those symbols so they can go pay attention to the, you know, my models. You know what I mean? I, I know this might sound like a weird tangent that has nothing to do with it. But when I was a little kid, I was like really horribly confused because I thought like I was supposed to perceive the world as though I were in like a video game and have like a camera over me. You know, just like a camera just over me and I would see the world like that and I would be the little character running around. And I was just really confused for like a good portion of my life because I thought it was specifically that's how it was supposed to work. Like wow, with the camera, that's crazy. like the camera above, like third person mode. So, uh, so yeah. you, you didn't think life was an FPS. Well, for, yeah, first person mode is too hard. Like it, you can't really even see what's going on. I, I I I get that. Like I used to look at like the the fields and the skies and be like, these graphics are almost as good as the the new uh, demos for the you know PS3. Like <laughs> I would no, I would really feel and think that, and and I'd kind of be looking at the glass between me and the outside and realizing that it's you know the TV screen was made of the same thing. <laughs> I mean, I'm not gonna lie. A lot of my interest in this stuff did kind of start when I was like you know. 
little kid like watching the matrix like man yeah what if it all was a simulation this shit is crazy how do i know that you know <laughs> yeah but that's like that's like a classic descartes skepticism you know what i mean this is this is a far deeper skepticism well when me and my weed smoking buddies would always have that conversation what if it's all a simulation i would just be like you know what who cares if it's all a simulation we still have to live through it and deal with it and we experience real pain and experience real suffering and so like it doesn't matter about like perceiving the world as like a video game was that I thought that the video game was more real than reality. That's like right. hyper-reality in a nutshell. It felt more yeah. real to me. So I thought I was in the wrong world. Yeah, the, the, the blades of grass. The blades of grass that were rendered in the, the console demos were more real than the blades of grass that I saw. No, I, I had the exact same feeling, Rosa. Like, I, feel like, I feel like if Bonjour had heard that, he'd, even he'd be like, damn, yo, that's fucking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think it was that bad. Shit. Yeah. Shit. Yeah, there, there is something bad. intuitive to this. I was just trying to get some fucking tenure up in here. Like, I wasn't, you know. <laughs> I was just fucking around trying to make myself feel better for, you know, not, not being a comic anymore. I think there's something to being, it, when you're engaged with media, you focus on it in a way I don't think most people focus on the present moment in their daily life that continuously. Yeah, um, yeah. And so there's, there's a kind of experienced presence and realness in cultural forms and media that, that we actually don't experience day to day sometimes. Grant, have you ever heard of a little thing called mindfulness? Oh, Focus <laughs> on the present. <sighs> well, that's it for this week, I guess. How are you feeling? Excited, frustrated, bored, pissed that we spent an hour talking about this shit when we could have talked about something that would illuminate new depths of the class struggle or shed some light on some ill or misunderstood aspect of the history of the workers' movement. Too fucking bad. Over the course of the episode, we never really got around to talking about why it is I wanted why it is I wanted to revisit this in the first place and I think what's pushed me more than anything else is watching the sort of mass hysteria that's developed in the wake of the Trump presidency and really just seeing the different kind of illusions people have about the institutions that govern our society and this idea that you know Trump is either somehow a disgrace to the magisterial history of the presidency or this idea that he's actually a genius who's going to restore the vitality of the nation and even maybe expose like an international pedophile ring that just happens to consist of all the celebrities that you hate. Um, people just don't know what to make of it. And there are so many debates going on about all of this, and they're the wrong debates. And it's in much starker relief than ever. And so watching people fret and run around in circles 
acting like the sky is falling because they want to return to this illusion that they had before or they want to shore it up somehow I don't know I thought that and in some ways I think in the face of times like this um, sort of like Nietzsche Bardriard can be an interesting intellectual companion for chaotic and trying times but his actual empirical utility is you know it's not much but I think it's good to sort of we rip on this kind of postmodern stuff a lot and I think it's useful to once in a while look at straight in the face and look at the, some of the figures from postmodernity and examine what they have to say in their own words so expect more of this we're probably going to do something by leotard at some point I don't know when We'll continue these critical theory excursions from time to time. But it's not going to be our main thing, obviously. We have more um, Patreon donation readings assigned coming up. We're going to try and get to those and push through and clear through as many of those as possible. Um, a lot of those are really good. We've read some... I particularly enjoyed the piece on uh, neoliberalism in the family, which I never would have I never would have found or thought to look at. So I'm looking forward to doing some more of those, and uh, looking forward to the new year. You know, fuck 2018, right? Fuck that year. You know, fuck that year. That's just a bad year. I'm sure. I'm sure it's all gonna be. It's all coming up Millhouse this year. 2019! So until next time. Oh, by the way, um, you know, um, you can subscribe to our Patreon if you want to support the show. You can do that. Or you can send us some straight-up money through PayPal. Just send, us some mo just send us some money. You can just do that. You know, they don't take a... That doesn't, I don't think they take a bite there. T Patreon takes a bite. You know, you can, you can just promote our stuff, you know. Share our, uh, share our shit. Leave us a good review on iTunes. That helps. You know, makes us look more legit. And, uh, yeah. Uh, just keep on listening. You know, come, come hang out on Discord sometime. You know, we're all... I'm not super active on there, but, you know. We're there. There's a presence. Pretty accessible people. You know, we don't got a lot. We don't got. We don't got. We don't have that much going on. You know, we can we can hang out. And uh, yeah, um, take care of yourself. I love you. You're beautiful. And so until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. <laughs>